Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Church, that was great singing, and I haven't heard you that loud in a long time. Those kids showed you the way, didn't they? It was wonderful to hear you sing praises to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, from the bottom of your heart. We have gathered to turn our eyes upon Jesus. We've gathered to worship Jesus together. We've been led in worship by the children of the Crosswalk Ministry and already led in prayer by Pastor Darren. And I want to lead us again in a, in a pastoral prayer this morning. I want to pray really for two things. I want to pray for the preaching of the word where I'm about to preach the gospel out of Matthew 16. And secondly, I want to pray along the lines of 1 Timothy 2. God's word says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So in addition to praying for the preaching of the word and the preaching of the gospel, which is what we're all about as a congregation, in accord with 1 Timothy 2, we want to pray for our city and our state. We have an important election coming up this Tuesday, and we want to pray about these things. The church gathers to proclaim salvation in Jesus' name. That's what 1 Timothy 2 says, that God desires all people to be saved because there's one God and there's one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this church gathers in this facility in particular because we're all happen to be citizens of, of this country, in this community, and in this state, and as an expression of our, our love for our neighbors, and even as an expression of submission to our governing authorities, we pray for them, and also as an expression of love for our neighbors, and as a, a part of being a faithful citizen, uh, we take the time and the effort uh, to vote. There's an important Supreme Court justice election that's on the ballot. And as you vote, I would just encourage you to honor the Lord Jesus Christ and the principles that we find in God's word. But let's pray for these things together. Lord God, we have gathered to praise you and to lift up the name of the only mediator, the man the God-man, Jesus Christ, the only Savior. So, Lord Jesus, we praise you. We thank you for this gathering on a Sunday morning where you have called us to praise you together as a church. Thank you for the children of the Crosswalk Ministry and how they led us in song. We pray for those kids. We pray for the parents. We pray for the grandparents. We pray for those visiting who may not even be born again or may not be Christians or a part of a church that preaches the gospel. We pray for every soul here that you would soften our hearts, that you would show us Jesus and his great love for us. We thank you in particular for the gift of being a member of the family of God, the church. We pray for those precious crosswalk workers who uh, those children aren't their, their biological sons and daughters, but in the family of God, they love them like family. Thank you for the great, great blessing of belonging to the family of God through Jesus Christ. 
We pray that each of those little ones would follow you in saving faith. We pray for those who work alongside of them and who serve them and teach them in the crosswalk ministry, that they would persevere in the faith. Lord God, as a church, we pray for all people. We pray in a special way for those in governing authority over us. We pray for the decisions that they make. And we pray for the decisions that we will make this Tuesday in the election. We pray, Lord God, for your good principles of righteousness, of peace, of justice to prevail. We ask because, God, you call us to ask for this. We plead like those in the Psalms. We plead for evil and injustice and wickedness to be stopped. We pray for it not to be enshrined in law and protected by governing authorities, but we pray for it to cease. Lord God, it was last year in our worship services that we prayed prayers of thanksgiving when you answered our prayer that Roe v. Wade would be overturned on a national level. We pray for more such reversals of injustice and wickedness, and we pray for peace, we pray for righteousness and justice to prevail in our city in our state, and in this country. And we ask for righteousness and justice to prevail importantly in our own lives. Help us to confess our sin and our failing. Help us to cling to Jesus Christ, our only Savior. And now, Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would open our hearts as we hear the word of Christ, would you bring us life and light in Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself a ransom for all. Show us what it means to love him and follow him all the way to the end, that Jesus Christ would be glorified in the life of his church. In his name we pray, amen. Our text this morning is Matthew 16, and this will also be our text next Sunday for Easter Sunday. I'm going to read to you from Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, on down through verse 28. If you have a Bible, you can look on. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's usually a Bible in about every third chair or so. And uh, Matthew is at the very beginning of the New Testament, about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. And I'm reading from Matthew 16, verse 21, down through verse 28. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
How wonderful and how challenging are those last two words of verse 24. One of our favorite things that Jesus ever said, and he repeated it many times, those two words, when Jesus looked at women and men like you and said to you, follow me, follow me. Every one of those little kids who was up here singing, I suppose we labor to teach them in their Sunday school classes, to teach them principles from the Bible, and teaching is a huge part of the ministry of the church. But you know, teaching, that is declaring things verbally, in the ministry of the church and in the ministry of Jesus Christ is always, always meant to be mutually dependent upon not only teaching, but showing, modeling, demonstrating, So you don't just tell someone what to do, but you say, you teach them what to do, and then you say, follow me, and I'll show you how to do it. This is irreplaceable in Christian discipleship. And Jesus says, follow me. For many of us, these are two of our favorite words that Jesus ever said when he says, follow me. The number of sermons that have been preached on these two words is is probably beyond reckoning. I want to deal with this text both this morning and next Sunday. My favorite sermon that I ever heard or or read from this, most of the stuff I like is from people who are long, long, long dead. Contemporary stuff just doesn't do it for me. My favorite sermon on this is actually from Augustine, which means that it was preached like 1,600 years ago. Listen to what he says. Man, who might be seen, but is not to be followed. God is to be followed, but he could not be seen. Therefore, God was made man, that he might be seen by man, and whom man might follow unto eternal life. Every one of these kids up here, we teach them the right thing to do, and... I suppose as the pastor here and you guys as parents and grandparents and friends, you're supposed to demonstrate to them the right thing to do. But I actually don't want any one of those kids to do everything the way that I do it or the way that you do it. Because just like Augustine said, man can be seen, but should not always be followed. Because you take wrong turns. Maybe you take wrong turns innocently sometimes and stumble into iniquity, but you also take wrong turns intentionally and you sin. So do I. Man can be seen, but he is not always to be followed. Well, God should be followed, but he could not be seen. Therefore, God was made man so that we could see him and so that we could follow him. The Christian life is lived because of Jesus Christ, the God-man who lived and died and rose again. And the Christian life is lived in Jesus Christ, and the Christian life is lived following Christ. You see verse 21, Jesus describes what he will do for us. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised to declare to you this morning and next week on Easter Sunday, what is the Christian gospel? The Christian gospel is wrapped up in who is Jesus Christ and what has Jesus Christ done? 
the person and work of the Son of God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, in verse 21, he describes his work in four simple statements. First, I must go to Jerusalem, he says. When he says Jerusalem, he's importing the entire Old Testament into what he's doing. He's the fulfillment of all the prophecies. Jerusalem was the place where the holy sacrifice was made. Jerusalem was the place where the lamb was slain so that sin could be forgiven. And this final, perfect, ultimate sacrifice had to happen in Jerusalem. That was legally proper from the laws of the Old Testament, and it was historically proper for David, the prophets. It all leads to this. Second of these four steps, you see there in verse 21, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Jesus didn't enumerate all of the gory details. I'm not much on movies that try to show exactly what it was like when he was whipped and beaten and bruised. He doesn't visualize it here in living color. He just subsumes it all mercifully under this statement that he must suffer. Oh, yes, he must and he would, and he did. He says he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And then third, he must be killed. Why must he be killed? Because the wages of sin is death, and every soul that sins must die. Jesus, being God, merited no death. He, his wasn't a soul that sinned, but because all of us, we are the souls who have sinned, this innocent one could die in our place. And fourth and finally, don't miss the end of the verse, and on the third day be raised. He would be resurrected on the third day. He had to be resurrected on the third day because it was impossible for death to hold him in. His resurrection is the divine authentication that what happened in Jerusalem was what was foretold, that the sufferings were even meritorious, that he earned our, our, our salvation on that cross and that his death was the final substitute and sacrifice for sin. So this is the gospel, the marvelous truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. Who Jesus is, he is God made man so that we can finally follow the one who we should follow and what he has done. He had to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and then be raised again. This is the gospel. The gospel is not merely that Jesus' death was a demonstration of human hatred and divine love. The gospel isn't merely that. The most radical thing about the gospel is that Jesus claimed that in his death, there is the forgiveness of sins. No one can forgive sin but God alone. And so Jesus, being God, won that forgiveness at the cross when he tasted death for all of those who would believe in him as the lamb of God, the substitute, the sacrifice. He took our death when he died on that cross. And in the resurrection, all those claims are vindicated. The gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ. But after he declares the gospel in verse 21, then he says in verse 24, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So link verse 21 with verse 24. You have to believe in all that he's done, believe in who he is, believe all the facts of verse 21, but then you show that faith in following him. What does it mean to take up your cross and follow him? The phrase, take up your cross, is so familiar. We're so accustomed to it. I wish that the bite and the sting of it could cut through with the force that it deserves to. It's, it's a, an, an, an unbelievable summons when Jesus says, choose to suffer and die, come my way. Who would say yes to that kind of summons? Who would say yes to something so difficult and demanding? Who would say yes to the way of suffering, rejection, and death? I'll tell you who. The ones who believe, verse 25, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I'll tell you who would be crazy enough to, 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 to respond to a summons that is so dangerous and so difficult. It's those who believe that fourth and final clause in verse 21, and on the third day be raised. It's only if you see the rising again that you get it. This is why sort of one of the open secrets about Christians, one of the open secrets about Christians is that Christians are those who have learned, decided, understood, embraced the reality that the secret to living this life is to live for the next one. The secret to living this life with no fear of death is believing that Jesus has been raised again and that in Jesus, I now walk in newness of life. Just as Jesus was raised and ascended to the Father, so we believe that whatever happens to us in this life, we will be raised again and we will be with the Father in heaven. Who would say yes to follow Jesus and take up that cross? I'll tell you who. Who would say yes to such a difficult and, and, and dangerous demand? Those who would say yes to such a difficult and dangerous demand, and I'm speaking to you, are those who have understood who it is that's making that demand. It's Jesus. So whatever I go through, whatever happens, if I don't have Jesus, I've lost my life. But whatever I go through and whatever happens, if I have Jesus, I have everything that I need. Because he's Jesus. You know, when Jesus says, follow me, think of how visible that is. To follow somebody, you gotta see them. They gotta be in your vision and in your view. When Jesus says, follow me, there is an implicit promise in there. I will lead you. I will guide you. I will not forsake you. I know where you should go and I will get you there. It's not a summons to mere unaided human capacity. It is a summon to vibrant, abiding faith in Jesus Christ. Looking to Jesus, we live the Christian life. There is no living the Christian life without looking to Jesus. Why would we say yes to Jesus? Well, we talked about why we'd say yes to him. You know that Jesus, in verses 25 and 26, explains why so many people say no to him. Jesus gets us. He understands our excuses. And so Jesus anticipates two hindrances to following him. 
In verse 24 is the invitation, follow me. And then in verses 25 and 26 are perhaps the two most common reasons that people don't follow him. Verse 25, because people want to save their life. And verse 26, because people want to gain profit in this world instead of him. Verse 25 is essentially saying no to Jesus because I want to stay safe. I want to hang on to my own life. And verse 26 is saying no to Jesus, to put it materially, no Jesus because I want to hold on to my money. I want to hold on to my worldly goods. I want to hold on to my worldly prestige. Even if you gain everything in the world and you don't have to give up any of your money or any of your worldly prestige, what would that profit you? I can't follow because I want to stay safe and hang on to my life. And then I can't follow because I want to stay rich and hang on to all my worldly accoutrements. Jesus warns us. He warns us here, doesn't he? In verse 25, if you hold on to this life too tightly, you'll lose it. Jesus is anticipating, in verses 25 and 26 and 27, Jesus is anticipating how in this world it will not be popular to be a Christian. That's what Jesus is anticipating. The, the ultimate beyond just not popular, that in this world those who follow Christ will sometimes be martyred, be killed, be likewise crucified as he was for being his followers. That's what he's anticipating. And he's saying if you want to hang on to your life and stay safe, you're showing that you're not really following me. He's anticipating the persecution where we'd be tempted to deny him and disobey him. But those who have become Christians have understood that the open secret of Christianity is this, just what Jesus says. If you hold on to this life too tightly, you'll lose it. But if you let go of this life in favor of Christ, then you'll find out what life is all about. And so as the cross looms ever larger and we see this, I just want to point out one ironic, almost humorous thing in the text. I'm not even going to really comment on Peter saying to Jesus in verse 23, or Jesus, Peter saying to Jesus in verse 22, far be it from you, Lord, don't let this happen to you. And then Jesus rebuking him in verse 23. I'm not going to make extensive comment on that. I'm just going to point out that ironically, our take is upside down from Peter's take. Peter looked at Jesus and said, oh, you're so beautiful, you're so lovely, you're so perfect, how could this ever happen to you? And I imagine Peter, as a realistic guy, who blew it, let's say, often, Peter could expect, you know, if something bad's gonna happen to me, I suppose that's par for the course because I'm not perfect and I don't get everything right. And I say and do marvelously malicious and stupid things. And so of course I'm gonna suffer a little bit. Of course I am, but not Jesus. He's perfect. He doesn't deserve to suffer. You see, the difficulty for Peter was understanding why Jesus would have to go for the cross. Wasn't necessarily understanding he had to suffer. But we today, ironically, you today get this exactly reversed. There's crosses on our churches. We understand Jesus went to the cross for us. We bank on that. We understand that. We sing that. We count on that. But if Jesus, not if, 
But when Jesus says, you're gonna suffer for following me, we're like, oh, I don't really deserve that, Jesus. Hold, hold that one back. It doesn't make any sense. We say almost forbid it, Lord, that I should have to suffer ever for following you. But I'm really happy for you to suffer on the cross for me. And our confusion is itself confused. And the most confusing thing in the world and the way to stay an extremely confused person is simply to do this. Make Christ small and self big. You'll stay confused forever to the extent and to the index by which you keep Christ small and self big. It turns everything around the wrong way. But the open secret of those who have come to know Jesus Christ, the great paradox of the Christian life, verse 24, verse 25, is this. Whatever you keep, you lose. But whatever you gladly give up, you get more than that back forever. The way down is in fact in Christ, the way up and in dying, we live again. The smaller you make self and the bigger you make Christ, the happier yourself will end up and the more will your joy be in praising Christ. But the smaller you make Christ and the bigger you make self, the more upside down everything in your mind, affections, will, and decisions will be. You hear Jesus' question in verse 26. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Uh, we're, I, I don't want you to read that question like, like as if like your dad at the dinner table is like, now you know what will happen if you don't share with your sister. It's not like a kind of wagging kind of question. Jesus, Jesus is actually... He's asking a question, but what he's really doing is making an observation about the way things have to work in God's universe. This is what happens. When we orient our lives, our decisions, our priorities around the way we want things to be and a big self to live in such a way, Jesus says, is to have already forfeited authentic joy. Maybe you'll get a couple of things that you want, but it'll end. And then what? You see, to live that way is to already have forfeited what really matters in life. If we regard life as nothing more than what we can get out of life for ourselves, how we can set everything up the way that we want it, we actually miss out on the great reality of life. Jesus is saying this is the way it always works. If you have placed yourself on the throne of your life, it's like you're already dead and you don't have eternal life. Because you've, so to speak, removed Jesus from his rightful place as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and Lord of your life. And if you continue in that way, you'll forfeit the gift that Jesus offered of eternal life. If you live in unrepentant sin and, and unchanging unbelief in Jesus and a hard refusal to follow him, 
then you don't receive eternal life. Rather, you receive the just judgment of God. Jesus says, what would it profit you if you gained the whole world but forfeit your soul? What will a man give in return for his soul? What will a man give? What could anybody give in return for their soul? However you answer that question, whatever you put in that blank is too small. That's an equation that can never be squared. Anything that's holding you back from following Christ isn't worth it because Christ is better than that thing. He's just making an observation about the reality of life and the reality of the beauty and the desirability and the satisfaction that you'll find in Jesus Christ and in no other. So I would summon you in the name of Jesus to deny yourself and I would warmly commend to you that if you deny yourself in this life, you're just denying yourself the best of this little tent refugee temporary camp that we happen to be in for the next 70 years so that you can have the best in the kingdom of gold and precious stones that will last forever. Which means that when Jesus asks you to deny yourself down here, there is self-denial, but there really is no forever eternal self-denial. Because when you follow Jesus and deny yourself, what you get forever is Jesus. And in him, there is satisfaction and fullness of joy, world without end, forever and ever, even under the ages. So in the name of Jesus Christ, I would simply declare as his minister, stop saving your life by living under the lies of this world and living for the approval of this world or the gratifications of the lusts of your pride and your flesh. And instead, give your whole life to Jesus Christ. Trust in his death to save you and pay the penalty for your sin. Trust in his resurrection to win your eternity forever. Believe the gospel. Take up your cross and follow Christ. Let's pray. We bow for prayer. I just give you a moment to pray. I'm sure it's the case that we've got uh, visitors who maybe don't often pray and that's all right, I can help you. God loves to hear prayers from a sincere heart that are prayed in Jesus' name. And so if you are not certain that you're born again and belong to Jesus Christ, you could certainly pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I'm, I know now that I have been living like I'm on the throne of my own life. I've been living like my own Lord and I've been living in sin. And I confess that. And Jesus, you are Lord. And Jesus, I believe that you went to Jerusalem and died on the cross and then three days later you were raised from the dead. I believe that. Now, help me to follow you.
Lord Jesus, we pray for your precious church, those here who belong to you. Would you simply grant to us the perseverance of the faith to continue to follow you? And would you let all who are here see the beauty and the majesty and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ clearer and clearer so that self is small, but our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is big and beautiful. Be glorified in the life of your church, we pray. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.